0: Thank you for listening. This is the Legends podcast by All Day Vinyl, and I'm your host, Scott Duddleson After you finish this episode, please subscribe and rate it, and please check us out on Instagram at All Day Vinyl. And today, I'm very excited to have a real legend. So that's what we speak to here, and who we speak to are legends, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. He's the co-founder of the Zombies of Argent, wrote some of the greatest classic pop songs of all time, She's Not There, Time of Season, Hold Your Head Up. I have here... Keyboard Wizard Rod Argent thank you so much for coming thank you for joining us
1: oh thank you Scott it's a pleasure
0: so i want to start from the present and work our way back and talk about your life and career and some of these key mm-hmm. moments so last year you released different game which is your yeah. seventh, seventh album and that marks over 60 years of you with the zombies and writing music writing music and lyrics for Colin's vocals and Colin's expressions and I'm I'm curious after all that time how has not, not Colin's voice but how is how has it affected how has that time affected you and how you've written for him
1: well I mean Colin and I, I, I I'm sorry if people have heard me say this before but Colin and I are always saying that that he learned to sing singing my songs because we started you know very early on and uh, I learned to write by writing with Corinne's voice in mind, my my very first song, apart from something I completely forgotten about, which was a completely a, a Beatles crib, really, about a year before. But the very first song I wrote was called "It's All Right with Me," and it's still one of the highly streamed songs on on Spotify. <laughs> and my second song was "She's Not There," and. We, you know, we were passionate about what we were doing, and I, and I always was. I mean, I've always loved music of every kind, and I, I've always been immersed in it. Every, everything from Miles Davis to Bart to Stravinsky to to all the blues albums that I got, along with many other people of my generation. You know, John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters, etc. And it was just the most wonderful time to be at the point where the beatles were breaking open america by the time we turned professional anyway and we we became the second group to make a number one in america we were number one in cashbox in 1964 uh, with the self written song we made the 9 o'clock news the BBC news in the uk i always remember phoning up my mother which was a pretty difficult thing to do in those days and and she answered the phone and said, "You've just been on the nine o'clock news." And I thought, "Oh my God, what have I done?" <laughs> you know? But she said, "No, they—they said you know your, that your song." And, and the other thing was that I got turned on to rock and roll, absolutely, because I didn't like popular music, particularly before before this. But when I was eleven years old, and I heard Elvis sing Hound Dog, and that, along with many other people, that spun my whole world around. And the extraordinary thing was that just eight years later, we not only have the number one in America, but many years after that, I found out that Elvis had that song and two of our other songs on his jukebox. So I just thought, well, because when I first saw Elvis, I thought, there's no way that I can ever really be a part of this. I mean, the two cultures were so much a million miles apart from each other, but in fact, it happened, you know, and and it just seemed really quite unbelievable when I heard that. I didn't hear that until the nineties, nine the the nineteen uh, nineties. I always have to remember now what century we're in because we've been going so long. But anyway, that was that was the thing, and we were just very very lucky. We had, you know, it was the perfect time. The Beatles had just broken down the doors to America, the sacred place of most of the music that I adored and and there we were to t- toddle in behind so it was it, it was a fantastic time and it was a dream to be you know 18 years old or 19 by the time we went for our first tour in America and Colin and I are 10 ten days apart Colin always used to be known as the boy who sings when when he was young growing up he would never stop singing but he was a great sportsman as well he he was one of the top. 100 yards you know it wasn't 100 meters in those days but he was one of the top 100 yards uh, teenagers in the country he was really a great sportsman and then then he discovered girls and you know that went out the window really (laughs) so we had the chance to start the band and it was just happenstance I'd never met Colin before the day of our first rehearsal but but you know it was it has been a journey all the way through we you know we haven't We haven't sort of worked together in a band all the time since I was 18 years old until now, but we've always kept in touch. We always got on really well. And we've always crossed paths musically as well. So, you know, it's been it's been a terrific experience. And and here we are. I always remember my dad was he had his own semi-pro dance band from the age of 17 to the age of 83. And I it used I used to, it used to kill me that I used to think that was so funny, and yet here we are, sort of not that, not that far away <laughs> from that, you know. So it's it's pretty crazy, really.
0: And the the legend is, with she's not there. You wrote that on a lark because you got a contract with Decca, and somebody suggested you write songs. The other legend is that John Lee Hooker was an inspiration from it or for it. Can you talk a yeah. about that?
1: Uh, sure. Well, what actually happened was we had this beat competition, the Hearts Beat competition, and we won. And after the show, you know, we were over the moon about winning, and there was a knock on the door, and in came Dick Rowe, the head of Decca Records, the man who famously turned down the Beatles, and he said, Decca would like to give you a, re- a recording contract for... One single, you know, for one single. And we thought, great, fantastic. And we'd already recorded a version of Summertime and a, a studio called the Jackson Brothers. And we were going to release that. But one of Chris's relatives was a professional musician and he knew a producer called Ken Jones who just produced a couple of hit records. I think I can't even remember what they were now. And he said, he said, I'll get Ken to look over the contract. So Ken did look over the contract. He said, it's pretty good, really. He said, but there are one or two things I think you, you should get them to change. And then he said, you know, if you ever wanted, I could always produce you. I've done this and I've done that. You know, and I know my way around, you know, Decca and, and some of the studios. And we thought, oh, yeah, okay. We thought we'd give it a go because we we were aware that the Jackson brothers were a bit of a semi-pro outfit. So, the date was booked for a few weeks' time, and Ken said, you could always write something, you know, yourselves. And Chris and I went away, and we did. The rest of the guys it didn't even register with them, and Colin forgot that he said it, but, but Ken did. And I thought, you know, with that, I always use the same phrase, with the naivety and ignorance of youth, which you only have once, but which is a fantastic thing because you're not scared. You know, you think, I can do that. I can write something, you know, not knowing anything about recording or anything about the business. My God, what pitfalls there are. But I thought, yeah, I can write something that's as good as the Beatles and yeah, and Colin will sing it and he'll sound great. You know, there's got to be a lot of harmony in it. That would be fantastic. And and I, I had in my head, and I sat down, and I had in my head the idea that I wanted the first part of it to be based on a blues scale, but I wanted it to be moody. And then I wanted the second part of it. It's very strange arrangement she's not there. It's in three sections. And, and the bridge is where it goes into harmony. And you've got three-part harmony. And then it builds up to the single note that Colin sings on the climax, which was right at the top of his range. And we were changing chords underneath him. And it ends on a climax on a major chord. And then we swoop down again to the minor blue scale. And, and that was what was in my head. And I put on some of my old blues records that I hadn't had for long, and one was a John Lee Hooker record. And I played the first track, which has nothing to do musically or lyrically with she's not there, apart from the phrase "No one told me," and that's just lyrical. It's nothing to do with the melody of it. But I, I, I really loved sort of blues influenced melodies. And I, and but the other thing was I was also discovering Miles Davis at the time. I think it was a wonderful time for music. And it was a wonderful time for the, the Miles Davis band with John Coltrane in it. Myles Stones was the very first jazz record that I could afford. And I fell in love with it. I can still sing most of the solos on that. Now, I, I, I still love playing it occasionally. It still sounds wonderful to me. And I mean, the Cannibal Adderley first solo. I just thought, absolutely marvellous. And But I hadn't thought about that being anything to do what we were about with. I thought, okay, no one told me. I'm going to spin a narrative around this. It was just a a narrative from the air, really. And I, I wanted the words to sort of flow over each other in a sort of rhythm. So it had impetus that way, those three sections. And I did it. And then I offered it our next rehearsal. And the guys just looked at me in total amazement and Colin said that's fantastic and I said oh well great you know come on you, you sing it he sounded marvelous singing it we, we put all the harmonies in we were full of enthusiasm we went along to the studio to Decca. we had an appalling three hours I think it was three or four hours on the first evening that we recorded there and the, the engineer had, had been out all day at a wedding early on and he, he was absolutely you know pisses and knew he was really drunk and he was shouting rude things at us all the time and in the end he passed out and we we carried him upstairs but by that time he'd he'd recorded the first four tracks it's all right with me she's not there you make me feel good Chris White song and summertime and the next day Ken Was a lovely guy, Ken Jones, but very autocratic. He didn't allow us at any of the mixing sessions. So the next day, obviously Terry Johnson came back. Terry Johnson was the engineer. Sorry if I said the name wrongly before, it's Terry Johnson. And his tape op was Gus Dudgeon. And but Terry mixed it the next day, and Ken came to one of our houses and played everything through. He we said, we've got to choose a single. And it was between She's Not There and You Make Me Feel Good, Chris's song. And it was a toss up. We, we thought they both sounded great. And in the end, you know, luckily for me, they went with uh, She's Not There. And then, like a dream. Well, in those days, the radio almost never played any records. Needle time on the BBC was appalling. It was so difficult. But there was a, there was a jury Uh, called Jukebox Jewelry on the television, where they played about a minute and a half or two minutes of each record, probably a minute and a half, actually. And then they had a panel of people who voted on it, hit or miss, you know, scores out of five. And one of the people on it that week, they chose our record to go on, and one of the people was George Harrison. And at that time, a word from a Beatle was like something from Mount Olympus, you know, it was just unbelievable. And previous records that came on before ours, George was saying things like, it what wasn't horrible, but he was sort of saying, Oh, I don't know, it's I don't see that. No, that's not a hit, no. And then next time, yeah, it's okay, but I I don't I don't really think much of it. And I thought, oh my God, if they actually get round to playing a record, he doesn't like it, I'm gonna give up. You know, I I I can't stand it. I can't stand that. Anyway, she's not there came on. And and at the end of it, he said, "Well done, zombies," you know. He said, "He said that was great, and that's a hit." And and he actually said something also. I can't remember what it was about the, the the solo in it, and and you know the piano solo. And he said, "If that's their real player, that you know, he's really good." And it was just absolutely wonderful, and and that really helped propel it into the lower reaches of the charts, and it then took off from there, and. Many, many years later, I remember Pat Matheny. I met Pat Matheny and when he just started, and, and he knew who I was. And he said, You're Rod Argent. And I said, Yeah. And he said, Oh, man, she's not there. He said, All that modal stuff. That was the record that made me think that I had a way ahead, you know, do it in sort of jazz fusion. I thought, Jazz fusion, it's, there's no modal stuff in that. And then I went back and played it. And I realized that over the opening chords that I just thought were, a minor to D, very ordinary sort of chords, I'd, I'd constructed a modal phrase, but completely without thinking about it, I had no idea that I'd done that, but it was just imbibing all the, the sort of, some of the great music that was around at the time. So that was the whole story of the
0: the first song. Amazing. And then it, it was obviously a massive hit in the United States and you guys toured all over the country, but famously also didn't make any money doing that from the tour.
1: The only person who made money out of it was me because we had various publishers, which was fantastic. And so I got what I was due from writing. But uh, along with the other guys, from a performance point of view, you know, we headline tours. We, we we played on very big package tours. We we were playing to thousands and thousands of people on the Murray the K Christmas show. We didn't make a penny. We, we When we broke up three years later, we broke even. We hadn't lost money, but we hadn't made any. So, yeah, it was, it was, but that was par for the course in those days, I think. It's interesting because all, from what I understood,
0: all bands wanted to be huge in the United States and bring the <laughs> U.S. market was the difficult, you know, dream to attain. And you guys didn't, you know, it wasn't all, it was cracked up. But I want to I want to take a step back before before you all broke up. You 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 did these tours and then you set out to make Odyssey and Oracle. Uh, yeah. Before you guys broke up, talk a little about the impetus of that and what you remember about the writing of Time of the
1: Season. Well, the reason we did Odyssey and Oracle was because we become a bit disillusioned with how our previous singles had turned out. Our producer Ken. Did a wonderful job on the very first session we did because he was just reacting to what was there and making the best out of it. After that, he had a very analytical mind and he tried to hone in on what he thought were the things almost like gimmicks, not gimmicks, but the things that the points that made the record successful rather than just take the song and get the most out of it. However, that song was and be very natural. He was always trying to. Put in something that he thought people would react to, and it was driving us crazy. And so, it was on the cards because, as I've already said, we 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 only broke even from touring, and it was on the cards for me and for Chris White. We were okay because we had these honest publishers, but the rest of the guys from the performance earned nothing. Well, we just broke even, and and it was really crazy. And so, one day, Paul Atkinson, the guitarist, said. I've got to leave the band. He said, I'm broke and I'm getting married. You know, I, I just need some money. And 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 that seemed to be the moment because we hadn't had a hit in the UK, even though we later, many years later, found out that over the world we always had a hit somewhere. But in those days, nobody knew. I mean, things got to you about six months later, you know, the news from Japan or 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 from the Philippines or or whatever. So The band was, it was in the air, the band might break up. And Chris and I said, do you know what? We've got to try and produce ourselves. We don't know if we can, but for just one album, so we can get what we hear in our songs over on record. And that's what we did. And actually, Ken Jones, who was very autocratic, but when he wasn't in charge, he said, I'll help you. He said, I'll get you into Abbey Road. That was almost impossible in those days. It was called EMI Studios, and they only dealt with EMI acts. But he got us in. I don't know how he did it, but he did, and we we did it very spasmodically. We had very little money to do it, so we would do, you know, like a couple of weeks, and then three months later, another another week or another, and maybe even a, two or three days. And, and, and we just sort of took sort of three patches like that. The whole thing only cost a uh, £1,000 to make, which even in those days it was not a lot of money. And we loved it. We thought, you know, we had some great people. We, we walked in just after the Beatles had walked out, uh, having recorded Sergeant Pepper to do our first sessions. We, we got the results of some of their avant-garde thinking uh, technically, And the engineers, you know, had all that in their minds. And we had Jeff on two or three songs and we had, we had Peter Vince, who was also a great engineer as well. And, and they, and they loved working with us. They honestly did. I mean, Jeff Emmerich in his book said the Zombies were the only band who weren't trying to sound like the Beatles. They had their own thing, you know, and which I thought was lovely of him. So, you know, we did it and. We all felt it was the best we could do, but the record company liked it, but didn't think it was commercial. That was the story of our lives, really. The record companies never think what we do, not even with She's Not There, they liked the record, but they didn't really think it was commercial until George Harrison said that and then it started selling. And with, with, uh, with She's Not There and Time of the Season in America, they were put out on subsidiary labels to the major companies because they li- they all liked the records but they thought no this is never it's not like anything in the charts so that it, that's not going to be successful but of course you know there were two number ones in cashbox there it was a top five record and you know it was just a great three years that we'd had and for not for not to be able to make any money from the touring side of things was just completely crazy but that's how things were in those days and and that's how we came to record uh, odyssey and oracle time of the season was the last track we recorded and i always remember writing it very quickly i shared a flat with chris white at the time and also terry quirk sadly passed away now the uh, cover designer and i called chris into my room and said can i just play this i, I played it to him he said yeah yeah i said you know chris that that could be a hit and no one else including chris thought that that was true anyway we recorded it very quickly Jeff Emmerich did a wonderful job on it. I remember, you know, we had that simple bass part, boom, boom, boom. But the, the tom and the bass together, just, there was something magical about it. And the way that, that, and what Jeff Emmerich got out of it, it was just, it, you know, it's, it's so simple, but it just sounded magical. And I said, I remember saying to Hugh, our drummer, that, you know, that Tom and bass thing, it's fantastic. I said, but originally it was just boom, 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 snare, boom, 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 snare. But I said, do you know what? I can hear you. We had about 20 minutes at the end of a three hour session. It was recorded in three hours. And then Colin, the next day, we did his bit. And I said, I can hear something before the beat, you know, a percussion thing, but like a hand clap maybe. And, and then afterwards, you know, it's something vocal percussion, like, and he said, Well, go and do it. And I said, Well, if you do it. And he said, No, no, go and do it. You've got 20 minutes. Go on. You know what you want. So we did it once through. And I just went, boom, 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 snare. And we didn't think anything else of it. And that was done. And, and Colin did the vocal the next day. And, and we mixed it. And I was the only one that thought it was a hit. Colin didn't think it was a hit. He thought Carousel 44 was the hit. And, they weren't going to release it in America. They had they but they sort of bought it from CBS over here, but they weren't going to release it. And then Al Cooper said he just joined them as a, their lead ANR, And he said, You've got to release this record. You have to release this record. And Clive Davis said, Okay, okay. And and so Clive Davis chose the two singles from it, not she not time of the season. They both flopped, including a carousel 44. And then uh, and then and then Al said, "You've got to release one of my choices. You have to, at last resort, if you like, time of the season. You've got to release it." So they put it out, and and the guy that we eventually found out about in uh, Boise, in Idaho, was playing it and playing it. The only DJ that was playing it, and it gradually infiltrated other areas, and suddenly took off like a like a fire, and and it really zoomed up. And it became number one in Cashbox on the very day 50 years before, the absolute day 50 years before, that we were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a bit of lovely happenstance as well.
0: And, and you guys were broken up by the time that it had shot up to number one. You were already on, on to Argent. Is that right?
1: Yeah, because I'd already started with Chris, started to form Argent. And Chris was a silent member, but co-wrote and you know, did various things. And we had all sorts of plans. Chris and I had a, a production company called Nexus, and we wanted to we wanted to produce three artists. We wanted to, to produce the zombies, uh, not the zombies. Argent, sorry. Colin's solo album. We wanted to uh, solo album with Colin. We still love Colin's voice, and we were still great friends with him. And what was the third thing? I can't remember now. But anyway, it was about. Eighteen months after the album was first released in the UK, that it was a, a hit in America, and it actually reached number one. And by that time, we just flew over to CBS, spoke to Clive Davis, had the easiest meeting I've ever had in my life because <laughs> it was number one. And 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 he said, "Yeah, here's here's the budget. Go and you know produce the albums." And we and we recorded the the album of Collins one year, produced that which I think is the most beautiful album from Colin. and he, I mean, Chris and I had the ideas about the album, but it was Chris who put us in touch with, through one of his music business relatives, with Chris Gunning, a string arranger. And, and I had this idea of making a really avant-garde album. The very first track we did was Misty Roses, a song which Colin had, had found and chosen. Very, very beautiful. We did it as a little jazzy thing. And I said, you know, at the end, we should open up into something that goes into sort of bar top territory. And and that that was my idea for the whole album, really. And and Colin, first of all, thought it was crazy. And when he first heard Chris's arrangement at the end, he said, I can't sing over that. But he, he got to, you know, adore it. He got to really, really love it. And he did sing over it. And many years later, many, many years later, I remember the When we were just making a name with our present incarnation of the Zombies, the guy who's the lead singer with the Black Crows came down to an early afternoon sound chat for us and he wasn't on till late in the evening. And we thought, what's he doing here? And he said, and he came up to us and said, Man, he said, Misty Roses is my favorite track of all time. And, And you think, you know, you can't make assumptions about what people like because musicians often have their finger in many areas and love many areas you know you can have a real heavy metal band and and they and they absolutely i mean metallica are great fans of the zombies i mean you, it's such a different area that they deal with but you know that's that, that's that's the great thing about musicians you know they don't have the prejudices that that many other people do your, your music
0: transcends as well And and one year, which you just mentioned, which was Colin's first solo album, is a wonderful album. And it was just reissued and it's it's tremendous. And and I'm curious, was there at that time ever consideration, because it was you, Chris, and and Colin, to do it as the zombies, just to even capitalize on what was happening with time of season a couple of years before?
1: No, because we never look back. I've never done that all my life really. And the only reason we got got together with Colin again was to have, have a ball doing new material really and 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 giving us an outlet to continue writing and playing and trying to do something that was that was you know of, of the the current day i don't mean in current fashion but something that was turning us on for, for real because otherwise what's the point in doing it you know we never did it just to make a buck we honestly didn't we always wanted to you know because you've only got one life and and i always think you you know at the end you want to look back and say well really gave it I may not have got everything right, but gave it the best shot I could, you know. Uh, so that was it, really.
0: <laughs> I got I got one more question about the zombies early days, and I'll have a couple more questions, and then uh, okay. wrap. But so when when Thomas season was hitting big, there was a demand in the United States for the zombies to be performing, and so there were a lot of fakes or a few, at least, fake zombies. One that included uh, Dusty Hill and Frank Beard of ZZ Topics. <laughs> And I'm curious if you ever had an opportunity to speak with them when Dusty was alive, at least about that.
1: No, we never did. But you at the time, I didn't. I didn't mind the fake zombie things. I, I really didn't. I thought it was quite funny. And and when I when many years later I found out that ZZ Top were one of you know the genesis of one of the the the, the fake bands. I mean, all they, they did an they did an evening of blues and they just did time of the season and she's not there as well. You know, I mean that's. A, and I'm sure they were like a million times better than almost every other fake zombies because because there were some real appalling people. And the worst thing was, the only thing that really annoyed me was the fact that people mistook them for the real zombies sometimes, and they were appalling, apparently. So, you know, that that was pretty horrible. But only for that reason, you know, I, I don't know. I just wanted to get on with things, really. You've had such such a fascinating experience,
0: fascinating life, fascinating career, and you know, 60 years on playing with with Colin, and I know you've also been with your spouse for over 50 years. What is what is the key to a great relationship, a great creative partnership, a great partnership? Because that's that's very unique in life.
1: Uh, Colin and I have always gotten well together. I don't know why. That's just one of those things. But we were all friends. I mean, we are all friends. And we were great friends with Paul Atkinson as well. You know, and and he sadly passed away in the early 2000s. But I don't know. I I think it's too, I mean, the hardest thing is often with a band is being on tour on a brutal tour when you've got hours and hours stuck in a capsule with the same people. And, And I think one of the, one of the, the ways to, to get to that is to always give other people their own space and, and not to, you know, do too much. I mean, either go to sleep or read a book or, you know, uh, keep yourself to yourself to to quite an extent. That doesn't mean you can't ever have fun together. You know, you can. But, I mean, to give people that other space, I think, is, is a way to keep things going. I mean, that's the hardest thing, really, the, the sort of brutality, particularly as you get older the tours start to feel really brutal. I mean, I've got to slow down now with the tours. You know, I've had a couple of health sort of scares. Now, you know, all the tests have been great. have been fine. But it's it's just, you know, I mean we're Colin and I are ten days apart. We're 79 this year, later on. And, you know, I think that the time has come to really choose things and, and take things easier. But that doesn't mean we can't still get passionate about what we play. And I think that on stage, I think, say the last tour, in spite of the problems, the last tour, we, we had a fantastic response from everybody. We always have a, a component of young people in the audience, always young bands and young people. I mean, people of all ages, of course. I'm not being ageist, it's, it's, but it's great to see that. And you get a huge amount of energy when people are a bit younger, you know, coming back at you. And that's fantastic. And it's very rejuvenating to feel that, actually. And so for that, whatever it is, hour and a half that we're on stage, everything feels exactly as it did when we were 18. It's just that leading up to it, it gets a lot harder. And and all the paraphernalia that goes with touring, you know, and all those hours in the bus, the early mornings, the the pressure of everything and not not being able to come down in time, etc., that, that becomes very hard. But the actual playing, I, I mean, there was, um, what's the name of the, oh, Recall, that's my problem as well, getting older. Oh, God, what's the name of her? <coughs> There's this really, really good sort of indie, young, this doesn't mean anything me saying this because I can't remember the flipping name. I, I can't believe it's gone gone from my, my lips. But she... She is the most enormous zombies fan, and she's twenty-four, you know, and making real ways, Whoever this person is, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry she ever sees this. But it's you know to do it for real, to k- keep doing it for real is the important thing, I think. And 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 if you always try and do that for real, rather than say we should release this because that's commercial, you know, just say let, let let's 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 write in the same way that we always wrote. In other words, get the kernel of an idea and if it turns you on, you know, if I'm writing it and it turns me on, I'll then get Colin over and say, Do you want to try this? And see, see see if you react to this or this, you know, hits you in in any sort of way. And he will. And and if he gets really involved with it, then that's great. And we'll work on it together and have real fun at that stage. And then we'll play it to the band and we'll see see how it works out in early stages with that and if that really works then then we're rocking and rolling you know and then then we record it and and it and it feels like doing it for real it, it really does and and you know that's that's the center of everything
0: really amazing and my my last question 2024 well 2023 you released different game 2024 yeah. you've got some us tour dates you got some uk tour dates any plans of new music or recording is there anything that you're working on that's planned for the future?
1: I always like to take it after, I mean, I wrote nine of the 10 songs on on the last album and I, I always need a bit of space after that actually and recording, you know, recording them all because we produced it ourselves just like Odyssey and Oracle. We did it from start to finish and it was a lovely experience and we did it very, in a very live way. We did it all together in the same room at the same time. We didn't use click tracks, except on a couple of times when we had to, so that it could be have as much of the, of the feeling and energy that we had on stage and typically speaking we would record a track just like the old days in about the basic track in about 3 hours that for each of the songs people would come over it was very hard because of covid but that's what we did and and it had to be either side of covid and then we would do a bit more work with the with the harmonies and then sometimes colin would, would come and, and redo the vocal, but not always. On quite a few vocals on the last album, he was doing what we were thinking of as a guide vocal. And because it was all so much of a one oneness, then w- we kept it because it had feeling, you know, and very natural. And, and it felt great going back to those, that old way of recording. I mean, I've recorded, I've produced many artists and I've had some real successes, but. And I've done every type of recording in the 90s, 80s, 90s. But going back to this was great.
0: Amazing. Well, Rod, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for the music. Thank you for your time. I wish you well on this next tour, and I look forward to hearing you, hopefully, coming back to LA and seeing you guys perform one more time, at least. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank you, Rod. you would be well.